0: We're going to be in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 this morning. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, Will be revealed.
1: You got your Bible open to Romans chapter 2? We're going to be in verses 1 through 16. We read verses 1 through 5. We'll pick up and read the other verses in our passage this morning as we work our way through it. We'll be in Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 16. One quick thing to make note of is this. The book of Romans is a relatively logical argument. I say relatively because it was written a long time ago and, and logic was done a little bit different then than now. But for the most part, it's a... a a logical argument. In fact, one author noted that Harvard Law at one point used Romans as an example of uh, the kind of argument that's important in a legal uh, argument. So why does that matter? On on any given Sunday morning, we're gonna be covering 10 to 15 verses of the book of Romans, and it fits into a larger argument, and sometimes it's hard to understand it in its immediacy, in its, its smallness. So I'm just gonna make a suggestion. I'm just throwing it out there for the consideration of all who's hearing is to read the chapter we're in and the chapter before and after. So like today we're in chapter 2, next week we'll still be in chapter 2. So sometime during the week, read Romans 1, 2, and 3. it take you 5 or 10 minutes. And it will at least help you sort of have your head around where the passage sort of fits. Now I'm going to do the best job I can on a Sunday-to-Sunday Sunday basis of saying, well, this is how it's fitting into the argument. Uh, but besides taking three hours to do a sermon, uh, it's also going to serve you well, uh, maybe to be reading around the passage as you prepare uh, for Sunday morning. And you might say, well, how do I know what passage we're going to be in? Uh, well, you can mark in your Bible where we end. That's one option. The other thing is every week we send out an eConnect newsletter and, uh, that comes out on Friday. It's a short devotional and article that's about the sermon that's coming up the following Sunday. And you can uh, pick up a copy of that in the lobby. Uh, But you can also sign up for that, and we'll send you that email, as well as uh, coupons to local restaurants. No, we don't do that. It's ridiculous. Why did I even say that? All right. Last week, Romans chapter 1, towards the end, it was a discussion of the ways humans sin. And it was an unvarnished discussion of the ways humans sin. In fact, in some ways, it's an uncomfortable and awkward discussion discussion of the ways uh, human sin and we look at that and we see in that ways in which we sin and we see ways in which we see Others sin and because of that uncomfortableness, it leads us To try to feel a little bit better about it because we read in there and we say you know what? I don't do all of the things, but I do some of the things and, and We feel bad about it. And there's a couple of ways we feel bad about it. We feel guilt guilt is when we feel bad about I did something wrong and I shouldn't have done it. There's another way we feel about it when we look at that list and realize we've done the things in that list. Not only do we feel guilt, I've done something wrong, we feel shame, which is like guilt, but instead of feeling I did something wrong, I say there is something wrong with me and that's shame. Guilt is I did something wrong and shame says there's something wrong with me. The fact that I would do that thing and clearly I got issues and my issues have issues. And so, what we want to do in that moment when we read the passage and all of a sudden we're feeling guilt and shame, we want to feel better. Okay, I want to feel better. So we have a couple of strategies to try and make ourselves feel better. First way we try to make ourselves feel better. I don't do all the things and I know some other people who do much, much worse things. Okay, so I feel a little better. I don't do all those things and and the things I do, I mean come on, they're relatively minor compared to a Bill at work, or my neighbor, or my family member. And so therefore, since I don't do things as bad as somebody else, okay, I feel a little better. Whew, okay. There's another way that we try to make ourselves feel better. And what we do is we say, you know what? I've done some things that are wrong. So what I need to do is I need to do some things that are good. And that way I can feel like, you know, yes, yeah, sir, sure, I've done some bad things. Uh, but I have also done some good things we do this all the time So maybe you're at home and you pop off at your spouse or you're at work and you pop off at a coworker, And you get real upset and you realize that was dumb. What was I thinking? So you go to them and you say, you know what? I'm sorry. I was dumb. That was rude. There's no excuse for it I behaved terribly. Will you please forgive me? And they say, of course we will. Yeah, don't worry about it. It's no big deal now, but we're still feeling kind of bad about it You know, we're still, oh, that was kind of dumb. So you know what we go home from church not or church you get home from work and you, I'm gonna do the dishes I'm going to do a little laundry. I suggest you do them right, but you know, I'm going to do a little laundry, I'm going to do the dishes, I'm going to mop, I'm going to clean the bathroom. And 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 it's sort of a way of saying I recognize I did something dumb and I sort of want to extend the olive branch and 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 communicate I realize I was being sort of lame here and and so I do these things. You know what? Those are all good things. You should keep doing those things. There's nothing wrong with that. You said, you know what? I want to express to you that I care for you and I feel bad about what I did and I'm going to do something a little that I don't normally do to uh, express that. The problem is we think in our relationship with God, it functions that way. I've done a little wrong things over here and so I can do some right things over here. Now everything's cool, right God? And that's where this passage is going to take us. Look at verse one of Romans two. He's had a long discussion of these sins. and He says, therefore you have no excuse, oh man. So I want you to picture the scene. In a sense, this is what's going on. He's having this discussion with the Roman believers about these real egregious sins. If you want to go back and read the end of Romans 1, you can read through there. We still have time to do it this morning. So here's what these sins. And then he sort of sees over here a group of people like standing over here. And and they're standing, they're not saying anything. And they're standing there like this. You got their arms folded. It's hard to tell if they're smirking or if they're frowning. And they're not saying anything, and Paul has given them sort of the side-eye, like, what is going on over here? Yeah, you know, I don't understand what's going on over here, and what this, this is, this all the religious people. We, we don't do all that stuff, and Paul then turns over to these guys and says, therefore you have no excuse. Now, so he, he now comes to the religious person who has tried to make up for his bad deeds by doing, doing some good deeds, and he's trying to atone for his own sin through religion, and he says, you have no, ex- no excuse. Look at verse one. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you who judge practice the same things. How do we know the religious person is doing the same things as the non-religious sinner? If they weren't, why are you being religious? Would you choose to be religious if you don't need to be? Well, no, of course not. The reason people are religious is because they recognize their sin. And they've got to they deal with it. So I'm going to be religious. So religion in its essence is self-condemning. We look down our noses at those who sin and fail to recognize that religion is an admission of sin. And Paul doesn't even argue with the religious people about whether or not they're doing the things. Everybody knows they're doing the things. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do, do these things. Look at verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape judgment? So the person has decided, I do these things, this other person does, but I'm going to be a good religious person and handle my business, so I can go to God and say, I've handled my business. He's going to presume on God that God should allow him to have a relationship with God, because his religion has taken care of the sin issue. Look at verse 4. What is God's kindness supposed to do? Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The religious person is not repentant because the religious person no longer feels they need to repent. They've handled their sin. And so you've got the irreligious person lost in their sin and the religious person looking down their long religious nose saying I no longer need to repent because I am religious and Paul sums it up this way And this is the title of the message this morning. Your religion can't save you Your religion can't save you Do you think God's kindness is supposed to make you feel good about yourself? Only to the degree it leads you to repentance, which means an acknowledgement of my life is going the wrong way. Verse five of Romans two, because of your hard heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. No one is getting out unscathed. The religious and the irreligious both will stand before the Lord. The religious have no grounds for elitism, no grounds for pride, no grounds for self-confidence, Their religion will not save them. Religion cannot save you. And this is what we're going to learn in verses 6 through 11. Let's continue. Religion can't save you because the religious and the irreligious are treated the same. The religious and the irreligious are treated the same. If you don't mind, I'm going to read verses 6 through 11. You can follow along with me in your copy of the scripture. Or you can just listen. It's fine. He, that is God, will render to each one according to his works. He, that is God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek for God shows no impartiality. The passage begins and ends with God's fairness. Verse 11, God shows no partiality. Look at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. When you stand before God, he will look at your deeds and determine whether or not you are righteous enough to stand in his presence. It's quite clear. God will render each according to his works. Your religion can't save you. The religious and the irreligious will be treated exactly the same, which is this. God will determine your righteousness based on your deeds, your works. I know some of you are squirming a little bit. Is that bothering you? Well, fine, take that verse out of the Bible, I guess. I don't know what to tell you. It says what it says, doesn't it? Simmer down, we'll get there. Movie came out. Uh, it's a pretty good movie, uh, but everybody knew how it ended when it started. It's, it's the Titanic thing. Yeah, what was it called? There was a hole in the boat. I don't know what it was called. Titanic. And the Titanic is a movie based on these fictional characters, but these fictional characters, their drama occurs in the real context of, of the Titanic. I don't want to give away how it ends, but the boat sinks at the end. There are are several classes on the ship. It's not unusual, even nowadays, on a passenger aircraft or on a boat or on a cruise. You buy the class based on the services you want to receive while you're on your cruise or your airplane. And, and, And it's based on how much you can afford and what you want to receive in terms of services. So the Titanic was no different. First class had this kind of food, and second class had this kind of food and accommodations, and steerage had this kind of food and accommodations. That's very normal. It's nothing unusual about that. However, We would expect, once there's an emergency situation, once a boat is sinking, for there to be access to life-saving boats, regardless of class. That's what we would expect would happen. But we know from history that first class had a much greater access to the lifeboats than those in second class or in steerage, just by nature of access, just by nature of knowing how to get around the boat. Unlike the movie, no, the gates were probably not locked keeping the steerage out. But it would have been nearly impossible for them to find the first class deck where the lifeboats were being loaded because they had never been there. And so it's it's quite clear that the first class had better access to the lifeboats. So that's why there's much more first class people saved. And that's why there are empty seats on lifeboats. And it bothers us that there might be a better than system or a worse than system. Religion is a better than system and a worse than system. We're on a boat that's sinking, it's called the universe. And the Bible is quite clear. The access to the lifeboats is no different from the religious to the irreligious. There's no first class, second class, third class. There is those who need saving in a lifeboat and those who don't. And religion does you no good in terms of providing you better access. In fact, we might suggest religion in many ways is an inhibitor to keeping us from getting to salvation. So we can put it this way. God, unlike the people operating the Titanic, is fair. God is perfectly equitable. Everyone will be judged exactly the same way. And in what way will they be judged? According to verse six. I know it bothers you, so I'm gonna keep harping on it. According to to his works those who by patience in well-doing seek glory will receive immortality and those who are self-seeking will receive wrath and fury and god is perfectly fair all will be judged according to your deeds the religious person and in the context of romans these are religious jews primarily but in this case we can broadly apply this to religious people in general Religious people tend to to think this. You know what? I do bad things. You know what? Irreligious people do bad things. But here's the deal. A religious person doing bad things is better than an irreligious person doing bad things. I may do the same things as the person who's not religious, but but at least I'm religious, so I got that going for me. And the Bible is telling us, no, you are in fact self-condemned. You are self-condemned by your religion because by having religion, you are admitting you are condemned and that you are, in fact, a sinner. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. If you do good things, you have eternal life. If you do bad things, you will experience wrath. The same for all, religious as well as irreligious, God judges according to his holiness. So if you read Romans chapter 1 and get to the end of it, and you say to yourself, I'm really glad I'm not like that, then you better stop reading and not go to chapter 2, because chapter 2 says you're just as bad, if not maybe a little worse. Because your religion cannot save you. Looking down on the misdeeds of the irreligious cannot save you save us. Balancing out our good deeds and bad deeds cannot save us. Preview of coming attractions. We're not up to this part in the book of Romans yet. That's why I'm suggesting you read more than the chapter we're in. Romans 3.23. Do you know what you've heard of this verse? For most have sinned and fallen. See, I want to make sure you're with me make sure you're still awake, all right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So every single person will stand before God. This is preview of coming attractions. We're stepping out of our passage and going into Romans 3, 4, and 5. We'll get there. Every single person will stand before God and will be judged according to their deeds. Those who have done good will go into glory. Those who have done evil will go into wrath and fury. Who has done good? No one. Not even one. This is the thing. The Bible is making a compelling point. He said, listen, the way to experience eternal life is to, by well-doing, seek God. How many people do that? None. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So that means all of us, if we're going to seek to encounter the glory of God, will not be able to do so. So the book of Romans is gonna make this argument. Since we cannot enter into the glory of God because we have walked away from God in our religion and irreligion, We need somebody to be good on our behalf. That's what we need. Jesus said it quite clearly. I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. So God, Jesus, uh, God in the flesh lives a perfect life, follows all the rules, is perfectly righteous, never does anything that's sinful, always does everything the Father tells him to do. Precisely when the Father wanted it done, he lived a perfect righteous life, and he dies on the cross for us. And so what the Bible says is, by faith, the righteousness of Christ can become our righteousness. So we stand before the Father, and the Father says, the only way to enter into my presence is, if your deeds are righteous. Are your deeds righteous? And what's our answer? Check with Jesus, because he did my deeds for me. And God says, Jesus, did you do his deeds for him? Yes, I did. Then you're righteous, get on in here. You are made righteous, you are as righteous as Christ. So God judges according to his holiness. The religious person wants God to judge according to the religious person's holiness in comparison with the irreligious person. God doesn't do that. God judges according to his holiness and the only one who is as holy as God is God and his name is Jesus. And so Jesus is perfectly righteous, goes on the cross, and pays the penalty for our sin. So we receive the righteousness of God and so we can enter into the presence of God. And then God says, what am I supposed to do with my wrath? What am I supposed to do with my fury? What do we say? Check with Jesus. Because on the cross, he made this statement. Do you remember what it was? It is finished. God, remember, your wrath is satisfied. I am made righteous with the righteousness of Christ, and the right, appropriate, good, and holy wrath of God has been satisfied on the cross. And God says, you're absolutely right. Get on in here. You are righteous, and there is no more wrath for you, because Jesus Took it all your religion can't save you religion is an effort to pay for God's wrath myself I can't religion is an effort to be righteous as God myself But we can't and your religion can't save you in fact the religious and the irreligious will be treated Exactly the same way. So look again with me at verse 7 if you will Just want to make one quick observation before we uh, move on to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor, immortality, he will give eternal life. So this statement is on the one hand true, on the other hand, impossible. It's a very simple statement. Everyone who is good will get into heaven and live forever. On the other hand, what's the problem with that? We're not very good at being good, at least not for long stretches of time. And so this is where the gospel in the book of Romans is going to be so important. He says, he wants us to get to that point where we understand the kindness of God and it leads us to repentance. And we say, God, I have shipwrecked my life. I need your life through your son. Good people go to heaven only. Problem is there's no good people. So that's why we need Jesus so bad. Because we can be good because Jesus gives us his righteousness. Your religion can't save you. The religious and the irreligious will be treated exactly the same. I don't care if you're religious or irreligious. You're going to have to stand before God and convince him you're good and righteous and holy. And the only way that's actually true is if you've trusted Jesus for salvation. Does that make sense? Moving on. Your religion can't save you. Knowing the rules doesn't help. I'm gonna think I want us to think about two types of religious people There's lots of kinds of religious people I want us to just think about two and then we're gonna focus on one There's one kind of religious person and this is a person who's in a religious club And there's more than just a country club or a fraternal you're in the Elks or the Eagles or the Squawking Ravens. I don't know This kind of club what it is It's a group of people who've gotten together and they want to have shared values They want to have shared culture in fact in many ways historically a shared heritage racially And there's an effort to, uh, by coming together to have shared resource, especially uh, money and power, in an effort to make sure the broader culture looks the way it ought to look. And the way it ought to look is what I think it ought to look like. What do I think it ought to look like? It should look like me. And so a, a religious club is a group of people who come together in an effort to use resource, influence, relationships, connections, to make sure their their club, as well as maybe their broader culture, and especially their families, look the way they're supposed to. It's a, it's a club of influence. It's both a club that you swing as well as a, a club. People, let's get together and make sure the world is looking right. Make sure we all vote the same way, think the same way, act the same way. And that's one way religious clubs work. Of course, that's not biblical, but this has been happening since, well, I think it's been 2,000 years I've been doing this. The other way is religious and religion expressed as intellectualism. A person who is intellectually religious has a throw pillow on their couch and stitched on that throw pillow, cross stitched on that throw pillow is the unexamined life is not worth living. So this person reads long-dead philosophers and religious people because they're convinced the more I cram into my cranium, the more religious I am. The important thing is to be correct on all religious arguments. And when people ask me a question, to already have a, a firmly held position on that issue. I hold nothing in tension. There's nothing in my faith and understanding of God where I'm still trying to work out details. Everything has to be answered and correlated and filed. And I've got to be able to know which authors to quote and which people to listen to on the radio. And I've got to, I've got to be dialed in. Everything's dialed in intellectually. And this is what we need to realize in Romans 2, 12 to 16. Your religion can't save you, and knowing the rules won't help. Let's read it, and then a quick illustration to show you what it's saying. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified, verse 14. For Gentiles who do not have the law by nature what the, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their, conf- their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Your religion can't save you and knowing the rules doesn't help. Those who have the law will be judged under the law. Those who don't have the law will be judged uh, without the law. And your religion or your irreligion can't help. A hundred years ago, I worked in the insurance business. I was an auto claims adjuster. I don't know where auto claims adjuster fits on the lowness of scale of respect, but I think attorneys who follow ambulances are one notch above auto claims adjusters, okay? So what this means is, I have read lots of auto insurance policies. Have you ever read an auto insurance policy? Most of you own cars, you probably never have. You're not missing anything. I've read lots of them. In fact, I've had significant sections of them committed to memory. What's my point? I also have read the USGA RNA Rules of Golf. In fact, I had a copy of the USGA Rules of Golf on my toilet. I know I'm not proud of it, but I liked reading the Rules of Golf. I don't know why I found it interesting. Why is it important? Do you know that an auto insurance policy and the USGA Rules of Golf seem really similar? They read really similar. They both are legal documents, and, and both have definitions of terms, and both have very precise language. In fact, Rule 9.6. In the USGA rules of golf, it is the rule of golf regarding outside agency. If you hit a golf, hit a nice uh, drive right into the middle of the fairway, and you see the golf ball, you're like, man, that's amazing. Who's awesome? Me. And you walk out. As you're approaching your golf ball, a squirrel comes out of the woods, grabs your golf ball, and throws it into the forest. That squirrel in that moment is an outside agency. And according to rule 9.6, you're able to replace a ball no nearer the hole with no penalty where that stinking squirrel took it. And you also get to say neener, neener, neener to the squirrel because he can have that golf ball, okay? So now I know some of you are really bothered by the fact that I'm saying outside agency because you know in the revised newer version of the USGA Rules of Golf 9.6 now calls it outside influence. I'm an originalist, okay? So get off your high horse, KJV only for Rules of Golf for me. You can have your new versions. Some of you are laughing because you're afraid if you don't, you'll be left out. Okay, here we go. What's the point of this? One time I played golf and I got to the end and we were telling up our scores and I took a, a deduction. I subtracted 10 strokes off my score. And i playing partners said, why are you doing that? Because I know the golf rules. Don't you get to take strokes off of your score if you know the rules really well? Do you? Anybody play golf? No, you don't. As it turns out, knowing the rules of golf does not, in fact, make you a better golfer. You can memorize them. You can memorize them frontwards and backwards. If you can't hit a ball in the fairway and finish the golf round in the fewest number of strokes, there's no quiz round at the end where there's a golf rules trivia. And if you get the number of questions right, you get to subtract strokes off your score. None of that. No one cares how, how good you know the rules of golf. The question is how many strokes in the round. All right. Some of us are living our Christian life like there's a Bible trivia quiz at the end of this thing. And what really matters is how much information we've crammed into our cranium. And your religion won't save you. There's no Bible quiz time. There's no trivia session at the end. You get to heaven if you get 10 out of 100 questions right, or you get 99 out of 100 right. Knowing the rules doesn't help. The rule book does nothing. According to the passage here, doers are justified. Doers, are those who are righteous are justified. Those who follow the law are justified. It doesn't matter if you know the law, you have to actually do the thing to get past uh, the throne of God into glory. So some of us think, well sure I sin, but I know lots of theological nuance, and I've read lots of really hard books, and I know uh, philosophers whose names are French and are hard to pronounce. And so therefore, sure, I sin the way others sin, but I'm really smarty pants, so therefore my sin isn't bad. And the Bible is telling us here, we will be judged according to God's righteousness, whether we know the law or are being led by our conscience alone. Either way, we stand before God and we face his holiness and his righteousness. God will judge us according to what we do, not how much we know. Theological knowledge alone will not get you into heaven. Theological knowledge on your own will not get you. In fact, the more we know, the more our hearts will condemn us when we stand before the Lord. That's what he's telling us here in this passage. Only doers are justified. And how many people are able to do the law to be justified? Just one. And he did it for you. So the way in which we stand before God justified is to have somebody do the law for us. His name is Jesus. And the way his doing is credited to us is by faith alone. Jesus must be our substitute in order for us to endure the judgment of God. There is no replacing it. Your religious knowledge will not help you on the day of the Lord. It may make you awesome in small group. It may, make, it may impress your religious friends, but God looks at the heart, and our religious knowledge just ends up condemning us because our hearts are full of rebellion and sin. Verse 16, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Do you, you hear that? So you're going to stand before the Lord and he's going to judge your secrets Man, I don't want him to judge the stuff people know you kidding me? The secret stuff? See, now we're squirming, aren't we? He knows about that? Oh, yeah, he knew about it before you did it How are we going to endure if he's not even just judging the stuff people know about He's judging the motivations of our heart How could we possibly endure? Well, you think cramming another theological piece of knowledge into your head is going to save you? No, we need that secret atoned for. We need it washed away. We need the righteousness of Jesus in the secret places of our heart. So what is the kindness of God? What does it do for us? Does it make us more religious? No, the kindness of God leads us to what? Repentance. This is the the, the routine and the rhythm of the Christian life. I wake up in the morning again. I say, is God kind again today? Boy, howdy. So what does this kindness lead me to do? oh man, I can't believe I did that. I don't want to do that anymore. Would you give me the power of your Holy Spirit to say no to that today? I know I said yes to it yesterday and the day before that and twice on Thursday. But God, today, will you give me the power to say no and to live my life in the hope of Jesus who has made me holy? His kindness leads us to repentance, never to self-righteousness. Your religion can't save you. Religious and the irreligious are treated the same and knowing the rules doesn't help. Three quick things, and then we're going to close. Religion does not equal status. Religion does not equal status biblically. I know it does in the world, but in, in, in the Bible, religion does not equal status. Walking into a church is sort of like being wheeled into a hospital. You're not wheeled into a hospital because you're well. You're not wheeled into a hospital and say, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I don't need to be here. I'm for the other people. I want to make them feel better. Then we come into the hospital. Yeah, but you're bleeding profusely out of your left side. No, it's fine, it's fine. I did some good deeds on my other side, so it makes up for this. So then we come into church and we think, why are we coming to church? Because I'm good. What? Religion is not status. To walk into a body of believers is to hang out with a group of people who agree their religion can't save them. That's what the Bible teaches. My religion can't save me. I need to be reminded again today of Christ's righteousness and Christ's kindness that my heart again as a routine might be moved in worship to repentance and to enjoy again the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. And that's the call of the body of believers come together as a group of repenters and agree with one another we need Jesus all the more today. We're not a club. If we are a club, I might suggest we're a D-Day Survivors Club. Do you remember D-Day? That was my way to see how old you were. So guys came out of craft, guys dropped in, uh, parachutes, guys came out of those amphibious vehicles and they walked through the beach. And when they got up on the beach, their, their pant legs and their coats were stained. And they stepped over buddies and they had to decide, do I stay here and help my buddy or do I, do I move ahead and survive to keep the mission going? And these guys get together every year. It's getting fewer and fewer of them, of course, but they get together every year and it's a, it's a collegial and uh, gathering, they all get together and remind you, of, hey, you're doing good, oh, your wife died, oh, you you're got cancer, you know, you know how it is you get older. So on the one hand, there's a joy of coming together. On the other hand, all of them are, have their minds going back to D-Day. And, and, and there's a bit of, we're, we're together and there's joy, but the reason we're getting together has some heaviness to it. And and to me, this is what Christians are called to do. We come together with joy in righteousness. We're going home. The kingdom's coming. How and why are we together? And we all look back and there's a cross. And 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 there's a weightiness to it. That the reason we can get together is all of our sins went there and all of God's wrath went there. And by faith, we account to ourselves that forgiveness. So that's why it's so strange when we get together and act righteous. Or self-righteous, I should say. We all get together, we look at a cross and say, man, I need Jesus again today. His kindness moves us to repentance. So there's joy, but there's also, I think, a sense of heaviness. That's the kind of group we are together. Finally, doers are justified, and there's two errors we make in doing the law. One error is this. We think we're so awesome that our doing good stuff makes us good, so I should go to heaven. That's an error We should do good things because God is worth it, but our good things will not get us to heaven. Thank the Lord he is not letting us into heaven whether or not we did good things. He's letting us into heaven in whether or not we trusted Jesus. So we should do good things, but just because God is worth it. But one of the errors we make, even as Christians in our righteousness, is we think we can curry favor with God through good deeds. The favor we have with God occurred through Jesus' deeds. We just serve God in goodness because he's worth it. Another error we make, and I would suggest this is the most popular one in our culture. It's broadly accepted among Christians, even here. God accepts me just the way I am. God accepts me, you know, I'm good. So I can do whatever I want. I can live whatever I want because God accepts me the way I am. I would suggest this. God loves you. Yes, the Bible makes it clear. He wants you to be like Jesus, and he calls us into repentance. So God accepts us by Christ and by his grace, but he accepts us to move into a life of repentance where we're leaving behind the old life and moving into the new one. So it's an error to say, because God is gracious, I can do whatever I want. It is better to say, you know what? I do whatever I want. God is gracious and I want to be moved to repentance to learn by God's grace to say no to those things. Your religion won't save you. The religious and the irreligious are treated the same and knowing the rules doesn't help. And so it should move us as believers to rest again in the grace of Christ. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you can't be good enough to get into heaven. You're going to have to trust Jesus to do it for you.